This podcast is sponsored by our good friends who have become patrons via the Patreon crowdfunding site. If you'd like to join them, helping us produce more podcasts, films, and other shows, please go to patreon.com forward slash the prehistory guys to find out more. Hello, I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. Welcome to the Prehistory Guys podcast number 24. Well, we have another real treat for you this month. Our guest today is Professor Bruce Bradley, a globally respected expert in flint napping and lithic technologies with an astonishingly rich and diverse body of archaeological experience around the world. Yes, and as some of you may have gleaned, uh, when we've talked a little about his and Dennis Stanford's hugely contentious Salutrian hypothesis, showing the possible evidence for transatlantic crossings in prehistory, Professor Bradley is a bit of a hero of ours too, uh, largely for refusing to ignore evidence even when people are telling him he was as mad as a box of squirrels. Anyway, more, <laughs> more of that later. I'm at the Salutrian hypothesis, that is, not the box of squirrels. One of the aspects that makes Bruce's work and experience so compelling is his focus on experimental archaeology. In real-world terms, learning how stone tools were made, for example, what makes two blades that look pretty much the same actually so profoundly and recognisably different. And his wealth of experience around the world. I attempted to make a pricey of Bruce's CV. Oh, God. (laughs) Quite. (laughs) Way, way too long. So if you don't mind, if you don't mind, in a nutshell... It depends what kind of size of nut we're talking about. Well, sizable. (laughs) Well... Bruce received a PhD in archaeology from the University of Cambridge in experimental archaeology in 1977. And over the subsequent three decades, he was involved in research and excavations in England, France, Ireland, Spain, Lebanon, Kazakhstan, Russia, going on to some collaborative research in Brazil. In 2003 to 2017, Bruce was lecturer in archaeology at the University of Exeter. He's been involved with research at Paleo-Indian sites in North America, including Clovis in Wyoming, Colorado and Texas, and he has conducted some of the research in the northern and southwest of the United States that is redefining ancient Pueblo history. Bruce is known throughout the world as a master flint napper. As we mentioned before, along with Dennis Stanford, he developed the Salutrian hypothesis on the possible Ice Age colonisation of eastern North America. He was appointed co-principal investigator of the Galt site in central Texas. More of that later, too. He holds or held various research associate appointments at the Smithsonian Institution, the University of Texas and the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh. Bruce has received research support from the International Research Exchanges, National Science Foundation of America and National Geographic, and worked for such prominent institutions as the Smithsonian, the University of Wyoming, Crow Canyon Archaeological Centre, Institute of Material Culture History, St. Petersburg, and the Archaeological Institute, Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow. My goodness, well abridged that man, I have to say. (laughs) So, with all that said, without further ado, all the way over in Colorado, welcome to the Prehistory Guys podcast, Professor Bradley. Hello, Bruce. Hi. Hi, Mike and Rupert. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. Great to have you. I have to say, Bruce, I I googled where it is you live and I couldn't help notice that you're barely 10 miles from the canyons of the Ancients National Monument. Yes, yes, Canyon of the Ancients National Monument and less than a mile from us, the other direction is Mesa Verde National Park. 
as an archaeologist, I can hardly think that it's coincidental that that's where you live now. It certainly isn't coincidental. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's uh, one of my main focuses of archaeological investigation at the moment is is here. I've been working on one particular archaeological site for over 50 yeah. years, amongst yeah. all the other things I've done. It's a fantastic landscape up there, isn't it? it it's a beautiful landscape. I can look out at the mountains and the mesas and yeah. right, right now out my window, yes. I thought uh, we'd just give our listeners a bit of a uh, bit of context. Bit of context. There. Yes. yes, must have context. Yeah. Archaeology must have context. So <laughs> now, with as I said before, with such an enormous CV, it's a, a problem, a good problem to have uh, when we're talking to professionals uh, with uh, such as yourself. Uh, the thing is where to start, how to help illustrate what you're about for our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, without glossing over. What may be the important stuff? I suppose the safest thing to do is to start at the beginning and ask, uh, how did a boy from Milwaukee get into archaeology? Well, it, yeah, it is a long story. I'll try to cut it quite short. Um, I got really, as a, as a small child, I was very interested in the outdoors, doing things outdoors. Spent all my summers on a lake in northern Michigan in a canoe, basically. Uh, and I was interested in Native American history and didn't have much exposure to it, but was has had this sort of drive. I was the only one of six kids that had this sort of drive in the family. Um, and one of the things I was really interested in was their arrowheads, their stone arrowheads, what we called Indian mm. relics at the time. Um, and I, that just drove that fascination. And eventually my family moved from Michigan where archaeology is very invisible. It's very, very difficult. It's woodlands. It's hard to see. We moved to outside of Tucson, Arizona, where the desert is, um, and the archaeology was just there on the surface. And oh, so I was yeah, out wow. looking for my snakes and lizards and things. <laughs> I kept finding pieces of, of artifacts from, from different cultures, and uh, that got me very interested, and I sort of diverted my attention from, from snakes and lizards and, and went to the <laughs> University of Arizona and enrolled in anthropology, which archaeology is a part of over there. Yeah. And, it's been a, a gallop ever since. <laughs> wow, wow. There are so many different directions we could go in. And, you know, as Michael said earlier on, that uh, we're so focused on uh, on European stuff. Generally speaking, people are very focused on European stuff when they're in Britain. We do have listeners in America and around the world, but the bulk of our, uh, of our listeners uh, are in Britain. And we don't know all that much about American archaeology, particularly, you know, the really ancient Clovis, pre-Clovis, uh, you know, and on back. So uh, I think that, that you know, that's a good thing to throw at you, really, you know, that, um, you know, the, the sites that you've worked in, you know, can you give us a, a, a sort of potted history of the peopling of the Americas and the cultures of the Americas without getting into the Salutrian aspect uh, at this point. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, what yeah. is now, particularly Clovis, pre-Clovis? You know. Okay. Um, we basically have a, a, what we call a Paleolithic. Uh, in the old world, i.e. Eurasia, Africa, uh, the Paleolithic goes for, you know, several thousand, hundreds of thousands of years, actually a couple million years if you include Africa and China. Um, which is a stone age. And so yeah. the stone age 
continues on in the Americas, especially North America, much longer than it did in other parts of the world where metal took over. Um, mm. But we do have evidence of people uh, which is mounting now uh, in, in the New World, in the Americas, back to about 30,000 years. Now, this is pretty yeah. new stuff, and it's very controversial. Um, yeah. But the evidence that we have is primarily stone tools, things that were made of stone that are durable, that, that survive in the archaeological record. Um, and even as, as early as what we call Clovis, or we, we use this term pre-Clovis. In some ways, I don't like that because it puts so much emphasis on Clovis as a thing. There yeah. were people here before then, and they had yeah. their own way of doing things. And we're just really in the last 20 years discovering this. In fact, mm. it's, it's very, very new. And, and there's quite a few archaeologists that still don't accept that there was anybody here more than 13 or 14,000 years ago in the Americas. Yeah, so we're doubling that age depth right now, uh, pri primarily of all places, South America. So we've had people in the Americas and they developed huge ranges of culture. Um, we think of pyramids in, in, in Egypt and that sort of development of culture in the old world. We had equivalents over here as well, including uh, written language in, in one case, at least. Oh, goodness. Um, which is the Mayan. And uh, so, and they had kingdoms and they had city-states. And then we also had a lot of people that retained this sort of hunting-gathering lifestyle, partly depending on environment. You know, there's certain areas yeah, that you yeah. just couldn't become farmers. And so, but yeah. the, the landscape over here has been populated for a minimum of 15,000 years, 20,000 years, and now we're looking at maybe 30,000 years. Now, yeah, amazing. there's al yeah. also a, a good possibility that some of those initial um, immigrants, if one you can use that term, uh, didn't survive. Their cultures didn't thrive and they didn't survive and they so they for instance they may not be represented genetically now in, in native american cultures we're mm -hmm. just discovering this so much of these discoveries um have relied very strongly on new technologies new ways of looking okay. at things uh, we can now get genetics out of the ground out of the earth we don't have to have human remains for instance mm -hmm. And that's changing a lot. Uh, the way we can date things has changed dramatically in the last 50 years. I've been doing archaeology 55 years, and I've seen amazing changes. Um, yeah. And so that, that's been a real benefit to American archaeology. But it's also a, a real problem because in the old days, not that long ago, we could do a huge excavation and deal with all the materials. Now we have so many things techniques that we can use that we can't afford to do a big excavation we can only do little ones oh my God. Okay. Oh. so we get a lot yeah. of data about a little little amount of stuff as as opposed yeah. to a lot of stuff with less data but yeah. this is a worldwide phenomenon as well but hmm. i think the thing for people in 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 the old world and eurasia to understand is that we have a very very rich cultural history in the americas very diverse. There is no such thing as the Native American culture. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Historically, that was really, really clear. I mean, in California alone, over 200 language groups, groups Amazing. Wow. at contact. Yeah.
I think it's that richness and and yeah. depth that people perhaps don't quite uh, understand. You know, our stuff tends not to go back more than um, eight thousand years because uh, the stuff in the ground deteriorated. Certainly right. here in the UK, and right. we don't have that the, those kinds of relics. We don't have so many of the stone tools left behind um, mm. uh, it, 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 from those kinds of ages. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anyhow, the, I, I guess the, the point being that there's a lot of really interesting archaeology in this part of the world. <laughs> yeah, sure. Not only that, yeah. we have a lot of uh, people that are still directly descended from groups that we can track back through time. Not, not mm-hmm. 10 or 12,000 years, but we have Native yeah. American groups that still maintain traditional lifeways. Now, they've changed through yes. time, of course, like every culture does. But they still have deep, deep roots that go go back in probably thousands of years in their in their mm. histories. Mm. So yeah, uh, and I've been involved very closely with some Native American groups as well as just close friends to see the the richness and the complexity of of, of culture that we can't find archaeologically. Mm. I mean, yeah. just the language, the, the the beliefs, the worldviews, the yeah. the things that yeah. we're always trying to tease out of the archaeological record. Is still there now. Yeah. How you apply that to the past is is another question. But um, so there is a, a richness over here that that had have people that haven't actually investigated it, looked into it, been exposed to it. Yeah. Don't understand that, and it's it's not much different with an with the average American popula- population or person. Most people, yeah. our history started with the arrival of Europeans. That's what we're taught yeah. in school. Uh, that's yeah. changed a little bit in some areas, but generally speaking, <laughs> the Indians were just sort of there, and and, yeah. and they, they didn't have this richness of culture. So it's important, I think, in in the spirit of sort of creating a context for what we may talk about a bit l- later on, alongside the discussions about the dates of cultures in the States, and particularly Clovis. The other question is the how, how people got there. Yes. And could you sort of sketch a rough arc of how that understanding has developed over the past, since the 1920s and Well, certainly, um, there was a great controversy in the early uh, 20th century about how people got to the New World. It was generally accepted by the professions, which were not archaeologists at the time, anthropologists, uh, that people got to the New World from Northeast Asia at about 4,000 years ago. It was very, very contentious. There were non-professionals that had, had a, a very strong uh, sense that there were Paleolithic people here 10, 20,000 years ago. But that was pretty much repressed. And in fact, rather dramatically, there's some amazing stories. Um, but then in the mid-1920s, there was irrefutable evidence found in southwestern United States and New Mexico, a place called Folsom, uh, of the uh, association of, of flint spear points and extinct bison, extinct megafauna that date back to the late Pleistocene, end of the Pleistocene, which is about 10, 12,000 years ago. Uh, yeah. And once that barrier was broken, then it became very obvious that there was an American Paleolithic. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, then many, many sites were, were discovered, primarily in the western United States because of uh, geological exposures, etc. And that's where people were looking. 
Um, and then the whole concept of, of people developing from that was those very early, what we call Paleo-Indian cultures. We now tend to call them Paleo-American um, okay. because the Indian concept has is a, is a little different. We don't know where they came sure. from, who they're related to. Yeah. So we, we tend to call them Paleo-American now. Um, uh, development spread across the whole continent, but still with the concept that everybody came from Siberia about 12,000 years ago. Maybe mm -hmm. thirteen thousand years ago. After that, the dating became became uh, better with radiocarbon dating, etc. And and that time frame got more solidified at about thirteen and a half thousand years ago. With this, you've mentioned several times this this archaeological culture we call Clovis. Now, mm. I want to make it real clear that when we use the term culture, it's an archaeological culture. It's not the culture as as you and if. If somebody asked you what your culture is in Britain, you would yeah. talk about music and language and, and religion and, and, you know, all these different things. Generally speaking, archaeological culture is something made up by archaeologists based on <laughs> similarities and differences in life ways yes. in artifacts, uh, timing, etc. So yeah. archaeological culture called Clovis, uh, there was a, a basically an, an understanding that this occurred at about 13,000 years ago, people came across the Bering Strait out of northeastern Siberia and populated the whole of the Americas within about 1,000 years, including all the way to the southern tip of South America. And yeah. that, that story, I wouldn't even call a hypothesis because it wasn't, wasn't really defined as based on evidence. It's just this is what had to have happened. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's the story we were all taught. Yeah. And any evidence that didn't conform to that story tended to be disregarded or considered um, inaccurate. And, yes, yeah. and especially since people were finding older dates in South America, how could that happen if they all came from North America? Yeah. And when yeah. I was yeah. at university, I was told that these dates in South America, the dates weren't good or the yeah. South American <laughs> archaeologists were doing bad work. That's what oh, I was taught. World. Oh, my uh, because of the strong, strong sense that we know people came where they came from and when they came. Yeah. That's completely blown open now. Okay. And it's wow. not just our work. The idea uh, now is that it looks more likely that there were multiple migrations or movements. Migration is a bad term in a way because that mm -hmm. implies people picking up moving house. Yeah. And yeah. Walking a thousand miles and reestablishing like the migrants from Europe came to North America in in the 19th century. Well, they migrated. Yeah. They're migrating yeah. now from the south to the north and the west to the east and et cetera. People filtered in is probably a better yeah. sense in, into the new world from somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. And probably many places. And this is this yeah. is what's exciting about now is that we not only have evidence building that this happened multiple times, possibly from many different areas. Uh, but also we now have ways of getting new evidence that help either support that or challenge that. So yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So it's that that's a very, very brief history. <laughs> but I can't think of a better framing of it, you know, for uh, our listeners, basically, yeah. I think yeah. uh, that's, that's a great foundation for us to, uh, uh, have started off with. Um, thank you for that. Yeah, that, I, I I want to ask you because there are so many different American sites that we could uh, 
talk about just to give people uh, another context. But I have to ask you, just purely because you said we can only afford to do little excavations, that <laughs> I thought, well, let's talk about a big one then, because the Galt site can't be called small, can it? <laughs> no, it can't be called small. Um, on the other hand, it's still a very, very small percentage of that site. Uh-huh. Can you can you tell uh, can you tell listeners about that because it's something yeah. that you know it's it, you know it's uh, it's not widely known about uh, it isn't uh, at all no. well and over here uh, it's it's not <laughs> theological circles pretty well now but it's 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 slowly filtering out and the in the Gulf School of Archaeological Research people are doing a really good job of uh, public involvement and, and and getting the information out. Uh, but the Gall site is is a archaeological site in central Texas. Um, it's a very very rich area for archaeology, um, in that it's it's what we in what we call an ecotone, which is a where your two ecological zones come together. So people were able to go one direction at certain times of the year and get all their food and resources, and go the other direction at other times of the year and get food and resources. There was a, a plentiful water supply and a good flint supply, an amazing source of, of stone for making stone tools. It's not the only place in, in North America that has this combination, but it's it's a spot that now has been pretty interestingly investigated. Um, it was so heavily used that the, it, it built up like a, a towel, a midden, um, like in the, in the Near East, except it was stone yeah, yeah, people, yeah. not farmers. Okay. They yes. never had farming at the Galt site. It, even when there were farmers all around them, there were no farmers at the Galt site, as far as we know. They didn't need <laughs> well, to farm. Okay. They could make their living just by picking it off the ground. They didn't have to put the effort yeah. into farming. Um, okay. So for what what are we now thinking? 17, 18,000 years, people have been at that place all the way oh, up to the right, okay. And because of that, this huge accumulation of, of material. And it's also in a valley, a little valley, um, that spring-fed creek goes through it, but limestone ridges around it. And so when sediment builds up on the limestone ridges, it washes down and slowly fills the valley up. Now this geological situation has been incredibly important for the archeology span because instead of things being washed away, they've actually been slowly covered for okay. 17,000 years. With, oh, with a few floods now and again. So when farmers first, European, Euro-American farmers first settled in this area, they started farming these really, really rich valleys that came out of the hills, out on the coastal plain. And when they started breaking the ground, they found literally hundreds of thousands of projectile points and stone tools. <laughs> and, wow. they, and people like to collect those things. And so there were this massive collection of of this area and the way that people made a living for the last oh seven or eight thousand years at the galt site was collecting tubers and roots and making earth ovens so they dig a pit line it with stones and bake them in these pits and over the years those earth ovens would accumulate masses of burnt rock because it cracks and start over and it just builds up and up and up Um, and all the arrowheads and things are mixed in with that burnt rock. So the people that were collectors came out and for I think about 40 years, you could you could pay the farmer so much per day to go out and dig. I mean, it was a commercial thing. <laughs> it's just and amazing. Yeah. And, what you found. and there were so many whole 
whole projectile points of spear points, arrowheads, etc. That when we went out there and worked through the stuff that had been excavated and dug through for 40 years, we found hundreds of pieces, whole, not whole. If the tip was broken off or an ear was broken off, they threw it away because they found so many whole ones. Um, yes. Anyhow, <laughs> so this was a well-known site since at least 1929 when, when some initial work was done there by a, a local archaeologist there at the University of Texas. Um, did some testing out there, but got down only to the bottom of that burnt rock. And after that, the soil changed and it didn't look like, and there, there wasn't that heavy concentration of material. And it wasn't until uh, in the 1990s that new landowners were out there. People were still going out and digging for arrowheads, as they called it. Um, but one of them got ambitious and actually dug down into the dirt below this burnt rock. Oh, right. So it was one of the pay-to-dig guys that actually yeah, made yeah, the breakthrough. Yeah. Okay. And, and <laughs> it turns out that he got into a level that had the Clovis material in it. That was uh, recognized by him. I believe it was him that recognized it and reported it to Mike Collins at the University of Texas. Okay. Mm. Mike, being an archaeologist like myself, who worked in France, Paleolithic, et cetera, et cetera, was really involved with Clovis archaeology at the time, got out there um, and realized what was there. And then mm. through time and with the cooperation of the landowners, um, started excavations out there. And we've excavated mm, quite, a, quite a long time, mostly with volunteer groups. Mm -hmm. uh, and not only did we find intact Clovis deposits, we estimate those Clovis yeah. deposits cover about 10 hectares. Okay, that's a huge <laughs> area. Huge. Now, Clovis is normally known for uh, association with the killing of mammoths or a few large animals. So the sites are, you know, fit in your living room, right? Yeah. Well, here's a site that covers at least 10 hectares and probably more because it goes into other people's land. Okay, yeah. so we don't even know how far it goes. And that's that amazing. So for, for people in England who don't know, that's uh, getting on 25 to 30 acres. Yeah, yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, we do everything in the So, uh, um, yes, about 20 acres of deposit underneath which, uh, under this burn, what we call burnt rock midden, underneath of which is a whole series of earlier archaic and Paleo-American uh, deposits going down to Clovis. And then after uh, extensive excavations in terms of depth, not huge areas, but different test unit areas, uh, we also ran into archaeological materials below Clovis that uh. became clear uh, because of the geological deposition on all had to be older than Clovis. So we yeah. now have uh, uh, archaeology there that goes from about 18,000 years ago up until the 20th century, all mm -hmm. in stratified like a layer cake until you get that to the disturbed one. is just yeah. astonishing. And we, mm. Mike estimates that we have over a million Clovis artifacts. Good now, that includes all the flakes as being an artifact, you know, not a yeah. million yeah, Clovis. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. sure. sure. Yeah. And that's probably 2% of the site. Oh, God. What I'm getting is, I mean, you, you were co-director of the dig, yes. and uh, what I'm getting from it is that the the sheer amount 
almost is the significance of the site. The, the sheer volume is this. Yes. There's, there's just no arguing with it. That's the significance of the Galt site. Am I that, reading yes, that right? And, and the fact that it's it, it was a huge settlement. Okay, Clovis yeah, yeah. is normally think, thought of as small campsites and people just sort of spread on the landscape, eking a living out of killing mammoths. We yeah. now know that Clovis, at least in some places, and this isn't the only site we know that's like the Galt site. There's sites in Tennessee and Kentucky that are equivalent, mm-hmm. but they yeah. haven't been investigated the same way. But mm-hmm. they had mm-hmm. huge settlements. Now, that doesn't mean villages, you know, with, with structures and farming and all that kind of stuff. It just means high concentrations of people at certain times of the year, perhaps. But yeah. over year after year, decade after decade, century after century. Um, and so that's really changed our perspective of, of what Clovis was. It wasn't yeah. just some people chasing mammoths. In fact, that was probably a very small proportion of what they did. They were really yeah. heavily into exploiting this incredibly rich environment. Um, and they were really good at it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they did then spread out. We do have Clovis evidence in virtually every place in North America, down yeah. into central yeah. Mexico and even into northern South America, Venezuela, down there. And so, what was the period that you were involved with that, uh, uh, Bruce? Uh, I was involved with it. <sighs> I'd say off and on. I was sort of the, the backup co-director in case yeah. <laughs> Mike was unable to continue. I was sort of the, the okay. honorary co-director. So I wasn't there on a daily basis year after yeah. year like Mike and his crew have been. Uh, yeah. But I started, I, I've known Mike since, oh, let me see, 1967, I think it was. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. we've bumped into each other off and on over the years, but then... Yeah. When the Galt site took off, I got yeah, more yeah. involved down there with Mike and his yeah, yeah. crew. Um, so that that's good. Now I'm getting the significance of of your involvement because it, right. you know, it's that's what I was trying to get to. It's, sure, you know, it's a big big part of your mm. life. You know, your, your it, career. It's been an important part, but it, you know, at the same time, I was quote unquote doing Galt. I was also in France. I was also in Russia and Kazakhstan and these exactly. places. So they yeah. were. You know, a couple of weeks here, a couple of weeks there, a field season here, a field season there. Yeah. If you look at my resume and and you start counting each of those things as a different year, I'd be 487 years old. We'll touch on a couple of those uh, uh, those other countries uh, shortly, but there's one thing I, I have to ask you from the point of view of, you know, horrified archaeologists that the the notion of a pay to dig site how how much was that a thing in the united states you know were there many places where people could just go and pay to dig and take away whatever they found I and if so say, yeah i wouldn't say there were uh, lots but there were some uh private ownership land ownership is very very strong it's very important and part yeah. of the united states a uh, worldview um yeah. i the, the site I was telling you about out here in Colorado that I've been working on off and on for 50 years, we own the site. We actually oh, wow. bought uh-huh. the site um, mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. One was to protect it because yes. private land, there is no official protection for archaeological remains. Uh, on the other hand, we have in the United States, we have very active and rich uh, amateur societies. Okay. Yeah. This is, this is getting off into an angle that's that's very close to me as well. 
that in, in countries where you have strict laws that everything is owned by the government, you don't have an, amateur societies. Yeah, I yeah. think one. Now, Britain yeah. has comp, kind of a combination of things where you private landowners own what's on the land, but there is some oversight by the government. And the Port yeah. Antiquities Act is a fantastic mm. um, thing that's that's been done in Britain that yeah. that allows people to engage in the archaeology on their own land or their neighbor's land in a positive way. Here we've yeah, never yeah. had that, but we do have archaeological societies. Very, very progressive countries like Norway, where I have cousins. I have farmer cousins. I visited them. They plow yeah. up our archaeology all the time and they throw it in the river when they find it why mm -hmm. they're afraid that the government will take their land there wow. is no there's no amateur society in, in norway there's plenty of people that would be interested had they had the option so here that we have the 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 problem of things being destroyed for commercial value oh, mm -hmm. a lot of it was done just because people love the stuff it wasn't just yes. for commercial sale yeah, yeah, um yeah. And that was their outlet, was just go out and do it. Yeah. Uh, which is what was done in France and what was done in Britain by the antiquarians not that long ago. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still the case here. Private land is private land. Okay. Yes. In the interests of providing more background and a bit more focus, it's interesting. You, your title at the University of Exeter, which you were at from 2003 till 2017, yeah, 17, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. With professor of experimental archaeology. Right. Yeah. Say a bit more about that, because I can't remember coming across that as a title before. Well, we I had to come up with a title, and that's <laughs> what we decided on. I was uh, the director <laughs> well, of the Experimental Archaeology Master's Program. So yeah. the University of Exeter developed a master's in experimental archaeology. Okay. So, and although I could have been... Uh, professor of Paleolithic archaeology or uh, <laughs> the ancestral Puebloan archaeology, whatever, experimental archaeology is sort of the thing that's carried me all the way through my career. Experimental yeah, archaeology yeah. is simply a, a method uh, of investigating the past um, by looking at material culture in in ways that we can we can test. So how how was Samian pottery made? Okay. Yeah. It's, that's a type of Roman pottery that was made in Gaul. How was it made? Um, well, you can analyze it till you're completely figured out chemically, but how was it made? So you go back to yeah. the archaeological record and you go back to the sites where there's evidence where it was made. You can find the clay sources, but to actually really understand it, the best thing to do is to make it. Okay. Yes. And then you can test. You can say... Um, well, this is the way we think a Clovis point was made based on the evidence that we have. Can you make it? And in mm. the process mm. of doing that, you learn what questions to ask about it. You never prove yeah. that you're doing it the same way. Okay. Yes. It's, mm -hmm. it's just a way of, of uh, approaching the, the, the material past, but it's also very, it's, it's an incredible way of communicating to the public. Yes. You know, when somebody's out there, making an arrowhead flint napping making something and they see it and they have never been able to imagine how that could be done i'm asked all the time how long does it take to make this arrowhead or this spear point and people are thinking weeks 
And I say, yeah, well, wow. on a good day, maybe 50 minutes. Yeah. And they go, what? 50 minutes? Well, I wouldn't yeah. have known that if people hadn't started doing it again, you know? Yeah. And then we can also, so it's a way of testing hypotheses. Yes. I, I hypothesize Samian pottery went through this. They collected the clay here. They did this. It was manufactured in molds. It was, yeah, da, da, da. It's a way of yeah, testing yeah. them. But it's also mm -hmm. a way of discovery. By just yes. doing it and getting the experience, you think of things that you never would have thought of if you're just looking at it from outside. Yeah. My sense is that um, over here in this country, there aren't so many experimental archaeologists amongst the professional ranks, that the people actually doing the craft and uh, mm -hmm. and the flint nappers tend to be outside uh, the professional realms. Is that a perception that's correct, or do, do you have well, more I, experimental archaeologists in the US? Well, I think or? it's certainly true in Britain that there are archaeologists who can nap, but none of them, I don't think, would call themselves expert nappers. Right. Well, not, mm. Do you know what I'm saying? None, yeah, like yeah. I know. Certainly the ones that I know wouldn't call themselves expert right. nappers. Right. They just mm. know how to nap, which is not the same right. thing at all. It's not, but it's not we the certainly same. would call Bruce an expert napper. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. That's the difference, yes. I think my your, your question is, is very relevant, but what you're looking at when experimental archaeology is simply one more method. Yes. It's, not, it's not a discipline. It's, it's just like uh, you can specialize in dating, carbon dating. You can specialize in yeah. uh, chemical analysis of soils. <clears throat> and so experimental archaeology is just a method. It's, it's <clears throat> not a discipline. And so, yeah. first of all, it's very difficult to get funding for experimental archaeology <laughs> yeah. because it, it's seen as kind of a craft rather than a, a, a real scientific thing, even though it's called yes, experimental. Sure. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. Um, and then it's also difficult to get publications. That's what I was going to say. So, yeah, that, um... because, yeah, it's it, it's a method. In in method method is not something that funding agencies, research funding agencies around the world want mm -hmm. to fund. So if you're yeah. an academic, you, it's very, very difficult to advance in academia if you're an experimental archaeologist, and that's all you do. I think the point I'm trying to uh, get round to is that it is uh, fundamental, it is profound, uh, actually, uh, as a perspective in terms of uh, uh, unraveling problems that may have existed. And, and indeed, in that, this particular case, it's um, your understanding as an experimental archaeologist and as a flint napper is absolutely crucial to what we're going to talk about later on, you know, the right. Salutrian hypothesis. Right. So I, that, you know, I, I just wanted to make sure that people understood that, that the experimental side is so fundamentally important. Our listeners will remember a couple of podcasts ago that the perspective that a lady who uh, is an expert in brewing has on some of the buildings that we have both here um, in the UK uh, and uh, in the Middle East and particularly on Orkney, her perspective as a brewer gives a completely different perspective on some of the things found in our buildings in terms of the process of brewing beer which people looking at the artifacts from a, uh, a typology point of view just would not see. Now, this is the case in, in everything in archaeology from my point of view because the, the material culture that we find is the result of human experience. 
Okay. Yes. And archaeologists in modern days don't come from those kinds of backgrounds. I mean, how I can't tell you how many archaeologists have written about mammoth hunting that haven't mm. even shot a rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> so it's an intellectual pursuit, which is basically, if you talk to people who grew up as hunters, yes, like George Frizen, who I worked with extensively in Wyoming, I mean, he, he was a subsistence hunter in the 1930s during the Depression. That's goodness, how they goodness, lived. Goodness. And he hunted yeah, yeah. bison, he hunted elk, he hunted deer. And, and so he has insight into animal behavior and hunting that very, very few people have. I don't have it. I've done hunting, but not like him. Um, mm. So it gives you a, a – it does. It gives you a, a, a connection to these things and a, I think a better sense of, of – what was going on in the heads of the people Yes, as yeah. opposed to just what we see physically. Cause most yeah. of what we see is a, a tiny fraction of what was going on. And I'm not, I'm not saying that people that don't flint nap can't do good stone age archeology. span I'm not saying that. Sure. I mean, an archeology span isn't an individual pursuit. Anyhow, it's a team pursuit. I mean, I can't yeah. Yeah. have all the experience that other people have in soils or, or, chemicals or whatever it is. So we work together yeah. um, on these yeah. things to get, you know, develop the evidence that we work with. So um, yeah. but to me, flint napping came first. Archaeology came second. Okay. I was trying to make it well before I got involved in archaeology. Yeah. Understood. Understood. Yeah. So, so maybe this is a good point then to, uh, to approach the subject of, uh, so when uh, because you are a hands-on expert napper, you've analysed different lithic technologies. Uh, you have an understanding of lithic technologies. How is it that you can look at two biface blades, for example? They look pretty much the same, but by looking at how they were actually napped, you can tell that it was a completely different mindset that created the two different tools. And we need to say what a biface is as yeah, well, right, if that's possible. Right. Well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about stone tool making now. Um, Thank you. Yeah. It's it's really amazing in that it's it's relatively straightforward. And that stone, to, to be able to shape stone by fracturing, not by grinding, not by, you know, polishing, any of that sort of stuff, but by fracturing, you have to have control, right? You have yeah. to control the fracture. And it's very fortunate that in this world, um, there are stones that break in a very, very predictable way. And, but more importantly, in a controllable way. So mm -hmm. I can, if I pick the right kind of stone, we call it flint or chert or whatever it is. Um, basically, if you think of a piece of, gl of pure glass, a solid yeah. piece of glass, that's what we're talking about. Glass doesn't break along fracture lines. It breaks because of the energy that's applied to it. Okay? Yes. So right. it breaks according to some very specific physical laws. It's all physics. Right? All you got to do is know the laws and then know how to control it to make the fractures that you want. Okay? That said, it makes it sound like there's, it's, it's very simple in the sense of there's only certain things you can do. And fortunately, that's not the case. Fortunately, it's very, very complex. You have a lot of choices, both in how to apply the energy, what shapes to apply it to, what 
tool to use, um, how to hold things, and it goes on and on. It, it's very mm. much to me. I like the sort of analog with with an alphabet or, or music. There's only so many notes, right? There's only so many musical notes. There's only so many letters, whatever alphabet you choose. Mm. And yet, we we haven't exhausted uh, the, the English language and literature, have we? I mean, yeah, sure. yet there's 26 yeah. letters. I mean, you know. So yeah. when you get into to combinations of things, then it can get very, very complex. And those choices are defined by your experience, but also the culture you come from, what you learned. Yeah. And it's the how you make them, not just the, the form. The form is very important, you know, but it's how you make these stone tools that's represented in the archaeological record that distinguishes between people's approaches, mm -hmm. the cultural part. Now, mm, the yeah. form is also cultural, but when you combine them all together, you combine what we call the technology, the making of, and the forms, and then the using of, how they were used, that becomes very, very, very complex, especially when you're talking about what you mentioned, what we call a biface. This is a yeah. way of flaking where you're producing something that's basically two-dimensional. It's thin. I mean, it has, mm. certainly it's three-dimensional, but basically you're thinking two-dimensionally. It's flat, and you're flaking. Yeah. You're taking pieces off both sides to shape it and to make it the thickness that you want. Um, yeah. That involves a lot of expertise. And when we're, to when we're talking about how thin these are, could you give a, a, a centimeter value to that? They, I, I don't have to make them thin. I can make a biface that's thicker than it is wide, if I want. Yes, I understand that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. However, when you start getting to making very thin things, which meaning we're talking thin in relation to the width. Yes. Okay. So something can be three millimeters thick, but only four millimeters wide. That's not thin. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're talking width to thickness. Okay. Yes. So if something's 10 centimeters wide and one centimeter thick, its thickness is 10 to one. Yeah. yeah. It's 10 wide, one thick. Now, to if you're just flaking bifaces, just uh, as an average flaker, you almost always come out with a ratio of about three to one. Okay. Right. To, to exceed three to one, you have to apply special techniques and approaches mm -hmm. and expertise. When we're getting into some of the things like clovis, we're looking at six to one. Yeah. Okay. Not okay. particularly thin, but thinning wasn't what they were after. Okay. They were after a certain strength and 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 functionality. Okay. Yes. So six to one is still fairly thin, but I've seen objects that are as much as eighteen to one. Wow. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Eighteen centimeters wide and one centimeter thick. Now to do yeah. that is extremely difficult. You break them all the time. Yeah. Because although I can right. control the fracture, the chances of fracturing this way, flat across the face yeah. and fracturing vertically through it are almost equal. So okay. it's a huge number. When you're The thinner you get, the more brittle they are and the more likely they are to break. So um, when we're talking about some of the comparisons that I'm working with, with Paleo-America and what we call Salutrine, which is an upper Paleolithic archaeological culture, um, they were executing extremely thin bifaces. Now, yes. a lot of people in the world made thin bifaces, but how they were making them, 
the choices that they use to remove those flakes um, is what connects them from my point of view. There's only yeah. two places in the world and two times in the world that this particular combination of things, very complex okay. combination of things, occurred. Now, that's not to say it couldn't be independent. It could be if it was only that that we were looking at. But when you say, okay, we've got these thin bifaces. Okay, well, they have thin bifaces at different times and different places, but made this way. Yeah. And then along with those, we've got these kinds of scrapers, these kinds of knives, these kinds of cores, you know, all the rest of the assemblage. Yeah. And they're all the same. Yeah. The statistical yeah. chance of that happening randomly or, or independently is zero. Yeah. Okay? yeah. Archaeologists use this all the time. We, we do these comparisons and use these bits of evidence to say these people were likely related and these people were not likely related. We, this is the standard method in archaeology with pottery, with stone, with housing, with pyramids, with whatever material culture we find. We make these comparisons. Yes. And the more complex thing is that we're comparing and the more diverse the assemblage is, in other words, the more stuff there is that we're comparing, the least, less and less likely it becomes that things are independently invented. Yeah, and, yeah, and then yeah. if they happen at the same time, it's almost impossible. I yeah. think we've established some really good pillars upon which to move on to the main thrust of what we're going to be talking about, and that is the <laughs> Salutrian hypothesis. We've, we've right. got the basic understanding of uh, the timescales involved. We've got the basic understanding of, of how people have thought the people, the Americans, uh, were populated in antiquity. And now we've got your perspective mm -hmm. on uh, the working of the stone and, of mm -hmm. course, uh, your work on, on the Galt site. So at what point, Bruce, did you become aware of the possibility of the European connection? Okay, that's uh, – we've actually written a book, and I'm not going <laughs> to – Make an advertisement for the book, but there is a book. Oh, it's all right. It's all right. No, oh. we'll we'll do, we'll do that. Across Atlantic Ice, everybody, it's buy that book. Ice. It's, <laughs> oh, it's very well explained in there, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you some ideas. I didn't make Thanks. up this idea. This is not my hypothesis originally. Yeah. It was a hypothesis that was actually I had in a class with one of my professors at the University of Arizona back in 19, I hate to say when, uh, 1967 or 68, and he was comparing Clovis to the Spanish Salutrian or the the Basque Salutrian in northern Spain. Yes, yeah. and but he was doing it very superficially, saying this looks like this, this looks like that, and because mm -hmm. of that, his conclusion was that they were independent. But isn't it curious yeah. that they're so much alike? Okay, yes. uh -huh. that set the seed in my head, thing. Oh, yeah, uh -huh. okay. Yeah, things can look a lot alike. I mean, they can. They, it happens. I can show you the same type of arrowhead all over the world at so many different times. But when they started to get together with more and more pieces that looked alike, I started to, eh, and then I just put it away. I didn't think yeah, about it anymore. Yeah. I got involved in working with Clovis sites in Arizona, and then eventually, and then I went to to um, France and worked with uh, Professor Francois Bord, University yeah. of Bordeaux. Uh, one of the, was that coincidental, or were you no, in pursuit no, of the idea? The, yeah. No, the the professor Art Jelinek at University of Arizona was a colleague of his, and he brought him over for a semester 
to Arizona. He's a flint napper. And so he was busting rocks down in the basement of the anthropology building. And I skipped all my classes and went busting rocks with him. Can we just call it busting rocks from now on? Yeah, just busting rocks, <laughs> making little ones out of big ones. Um, and he and I hit it off very well, and he invited me to come to France in the summer of 1970 and work with him on Paleolithic sites. And then he got me involved in, in the Paleolithic archaeology. We were doing Middle Paleolithic, which is too early. But um, I also got involved with the flint napping with him, looking at this Salutrian. It's very, very complex flaking. Um, it's the most complex Paleolithic flaking there is anywhere. Mm. Um, and so we worked on that a lot together. And so I got sort of involved in, in switching thing, thinking, man, I could make a Clovis point or I can make a, a switching laurel leaf. It's basically the same. Yeah. And so things start, started to click. At the same time, all this other work was going on in the, in the Americas uh, from more Clovis stuff was being found, but it wasn't getting any older. And everything that was coming out of where Clovis supposedly originated, Alaska, Siberia, was nothing. I mean, it's as far away from Clovis as you can get technologically. doesn't look like it. It's not made the same way. It's a completely different approach to making useful tools. They were doing almost the same kind of things, the hunting, et cetera, but in a completely different way. And that's where my colleague Dennis Stanford came in, who had been working on um, archaeological sites in the plains of North America, Colorado, et cetera excavating paleo-american sites um but he also worked 30 years in in alaska specifically specifically looking for clovis origins yes and after 30 years having found absolutely nothing yeah was anyway connected he Mm. actually started listening to my spiel (laughs) clovis and salutrian and then he brought his perspective to it so we came from completely different backgrounds. Well, not completely, very different backgrounds yes. to, the same, to the same idea that, hey, there probably is something to this hypothesis and so let's develop it. Hmm. Uh, and we knew that it was going to be contentious at the time because it was going hmm. completely against the, 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 the standard concept. Um, yeah. And we, we hit a brick wall, say the least, professionally. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't want to get into that part of it so much. But um, what became clear is that as we tried to, we developed the hypothesis and then set out to find evidence to disprove it. That's the way you do science. You don't go out out to prove something because you can always ignore any data that doesn't fit. (laughs) Yes. And that will prove your hypothesis. So. We still think of it as a hypothesis, not this, the answer. Now, now you've brought okay. um, uh, Dennis Stanford uh, into it. Mm-hmm. Could Probably now would be a good time to give a broad brushstroke about what the Solutrean hypothesis is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and again, remembering hypothesis, this is something that's yes. designed to be tested. Uh, mm-hmm. The idea is that people at the, at the height of the last glacial – uh, the glacial maximum, the last ice age, uh, living in Western Eurasia, mm-hmm. uh, were squeezed because of the expansion of the glaciers, were squeezed down into what we call refugia, archaeological refugia. Okay. Only certain places were livable. There were okay. four. You've got a Ukrainian roof. And this is about 20, 22,000 starting years ago to about 16, 17,000 years ago. That's the time frame. Okay. You got people living in a Ukrainian refugia, a Balkan refugia, 
an Italian refugia and a Basque refugia. Okay. Okay. So all these different Paleolithic cultures and peoples out there were in Europe were squeezed down into these areas. Just physically, they couldn't survive other. Nobody in Britain during this time period. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure. They were squeezed out of Britain. And these refugia, you've got two different basic cultures. In three of them, you have a continuation of what was before, which is called the Gravettian, what we call the Gravettian. A blade-based industry, nothing to do with bifaces at all. Okay? okay. And for whatever reason, we see this thing develop in what's now well, historically Basque country, the Pyrenees, the mm-hmm. Basque region, uh, northern Spain, southwestern France, uh, called the Salutrian. Yeah. And these people had very complex bifacial technologies, blade technologies, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, very complex uh, uh, bone, antler, ivory uh, manufacturing tools. They were also part of the great cave painting tradition that yeah. you see in that part of the world. Mm. Um, so they're squeezed down to this area. And from everybody's accounts, life is tough. Right. It's a glacial sure. maximum. You've got to be living in a very, very cold climate. You've got to adapt to that it's very cold climate. And food's hard to come by at times, not all the time, but at, at times it's it's a tundra. It's it's there's it's not a forest, but there's pockets of trees uh, yeah. along the certain river valleys like the Dordogne in southwestern France, where you see so much of the cave art. Um, and our hypothesis is, is those people were started in a bigger way, exploiting marine resources. They're right up against the ocean along the north coast of Spain, which was out in the middle of the Bay of Biscay at that time. Sea level okay. was down 200, 130 meters approximately. So there's a huge landscape out there that's now underwater. And they were making yeah. their living that. And we see the development of a whole lot of different technologies during Smutrian, and especially the Smutrian that were in the coastal areas. Uh, they, as far as we know, they invented the bow and arrow, the throwing stick, the atlatl. Uh, they invented the, the um, self-barbed spear point, which is the precursor of the harpoon. My goodness, uh, these uh, things are huge, aren't they? My yeah, goodness. these are huge things. Um, and it goes on and on. I can't think of all the things right now. It's in our book again. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> they were one thing that virtually all archaeologists agree on about the Salutrian is they were incredibly inventive. Yes. Yeah. They had a mindset that allowed them to do new things. Okay. To me, that's a, a different worldview from the Epigravetian that we're seeing the other refugia, which just eked out their living doing basically the same thing that was done before. Okay. Yeah. So we're, we're hypothesizing that they developed a, 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 a maritime technology, use of the sea yes. resources. During the height mm-hmm. of the glacial maximum, there was annual ice that froze the North Atlantic all the way down to Portugal. Not every year, but yeah. a lot of the years. So you actually have an ice front that connects North America to the continent. Yes. Yeah. Now, if you're used to hunting along the edge of the ice and the edge of the ocean, it doesn't matter whether there's land under it or not. Yeah. Okay. So to me and to Dennis, this be, this became a land link. Yes. Even though it's an ice yeah. link between the two continents. It's a very important point to to make that, to reinforce that point, because uh, some of your detractors uh, have have said in the past, but people would not have ventured out across the ocean. But to them, it would not have been ocean. They would have just seen a continuous landmass. 
well, the fact that there was no land under the ice would, you know, the, and the, the ice went to the to the water, they would still have perceived it as something that they could cross, not something yeah, that so, was a danger. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and it was probably dangerous, and, and it did oh, sure. flow annually. I mean, it wasn't yeah. like landmass that stayed there all the time. It changed mm-hmm. constantly. But that's the yeah. way it is in the north in the Arctic, anyhow. I mean, Inuit people yeah. have adjusted to that, anyhow. That's so our hypothesis point, yeah. is that the as the Salutrian people, especially the coastal groups, now not necessarily everybody we call Salutrian, the coastal groups adjusted and, and, and found ways to make a living in that incredibly rich resource out there, that marine resource, and through time expanded further and further as they got better at it and understood the weather conditions and the abilities. Uh, and certainly we think they had boats, probably simple yeah. hide covered boats, but boats. Um, yeah. And eventually ended up finding North America. It wasn't like they were out searching for North America. They didn't mm. migrate. They didn't say, Oh, there's a landmass over there. Let's go over there. Yeah. This is our hypothesis. And then through time, they learned how to exploit that incredibly rich environment. Yeah. And they were tethered to both ends on land. So you had Salutrian yeah. on both sides. Why would I call American yeah. Salutrian on the east side or the west side yeah. of the ocean? But then as the ice age started to, to wane and you start seeing the melting of the glaciers and the, re, and, and the, the uh, sea levels rising and the backing of, of, of this annual ice, it no longer became viable to keep going back and forth. Yeah. Now, our hypothesis yeah, yeah. has people going back and forth. It's not... They all went one direction. Yeah, Once yeah. they, mm. their territory was North America on one side, Southwestern Europe on the other side, and everything in between. That's our. Yeah, that's but our with market. an incredibly rich marginal resource yes. between the two. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And it, there were times probably for a decade it wasn't very good, so they had to hunker down. What we know is that people migrated around the world, people populated yeah. the whole world eventually. Every other place where we have the earliest uh, settlements of places, it's coastal. This is something that yes. is a human thing. It's the easiest place to get along. And also, it's the least changeable. A porpoise in the north yeah. is like a porpoise in the south. It's not like deciduous <laughs> trees in the north and desert in the south that you have to yeah. adjust to. So most human migrations have been coastal. We know that. At least yeah. we're fairly confident of that. So here's just another coastal migration is what we're talking about, a a utilization of an environment that was there for a few thousand years and then went away. Yeah. Um, And so then we end up with people in North America, but on the eastern side of North America. Okay. They then develop into what we call Clovis. In the meantime, you've got people coming out of Northeast Asia to the west side of North America. We, yes. Our detractors on occasion say, well, it, it, everybody didn't come from Salutrian. Well, we, said, we never said that. <laughs> what we're looking at is, is a much more complex story, much more mm-hmm. interesting human story than everybody came yes. one, at one time. Yeah. 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 Um, so what, what we tried to do then when we brought, put our book together is what evidence do we have that we think is showing this? That's what hypothesis is based on, some evidence. How do we... Say, what, what is the expectation if this actually happened, our hypothesis happened, what would we expect to find archaeologically? And we went out there and did the investigation to see what evidence there might be to counter it. 
And all yeah. we could find was stuff that supported it. Yeah, before you get into that investigatory part of it, something else I want to point out is that you as an um, experimental archaeologist with your speciality being in napping was able to have the, uh, the perspective on the biface points um, that you did that were able to bring the two together. But you should also point out that uh, uh, Dennis also was uh, had experience living with the, I can't remember, the Inuit tribe that he was uh, with. He's lived out on the ice. So He's he was able to bring... that, yes. He was able to bring his experience of doing that and be able to say, no, these people can actually get out there in boats made of skin and bone and what have you and hunt whale in minus 40 degrees in a 20 degree in a 20 mile an hour wind, you know, so. And enjoy it. <laughs> and enjoy- <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, yes. you know, it's a, it's a really important point that, you know, these well, two when, aspects of what you could call experimental archaeology. Yeah, but I think if, if, you're, if you're going to talk about that, it's, it's, also, it's also worth pointing out that uh, when people, you know, detractors of the Solutrean hypothesis, uh, you know, when they talk about, well, you know, people couldn't have done this, that and the other, I find it extraordinary that, that you can say categorically from people like, you know, James Cook's, uh, accounts that uh, you know the early travelers to Australia, their their um, uh, encounters with the Polynesians, that we know categorically that these people used to make very large wooden canoes. Sometimes they would lash them together, and they could ferry five hundred people at a time. Uh, and they would go sometimes a couple of thousand miles. Now, I find it extraordinary that we absolutely know from historical documentation that relatively primitive, we want to call them primitive peoples, could travel these extraordinary journeys. And yet when we want to talk about following an ice sheet, people say, no, it didn't happen. Um, and I, I find that really frustrating. Well, you, you're not the only one to find it frustrating because... <laughs> <laughs> We all have our biases, um, and, yeah. and I, I like when I when I present this hypothesis to people who come from a background of maritime cultures. They don't question boats at all. It's never yeah, sure. questioned, um, yeah. and it, it's it's a different way of thinking. Uh, we know there were people people whatever you want to call hominins on on Crete two hundred thousand years ago. That was never connected to sure. There were people that got to Australia 60,000 years ago. They had to go across bodies of water. Um, yeah. I mean, to think, these are modern human beings. They've got the same brain that we have. Okay, so they have different yeah. experiences, but they have the same brain we have. It's hubris to think that people at that time period couldn't do things. Now, what we've got to do as archaeologists is look at the evidence. Yeah. Yeah. We know that people were in Australia 60,000 years ago. And they probably had to come from the, the mainland someplace, Indonesia, somewhere. But if you look at the archaeological assemblages, they don't look that much alike. And yet we have no doubt that they're related. Mm, yes. Mm, you know, so one of our one of our big frust- frustrations has been that archaeologists are very good at picking and choosing what they want to look at and how they want to look at it. So, yeah. For instance, and I won't name any names, but for instance, when we're looking at how did, how did Alaska get populated? What is the cultural background of Alaska, the history and the yeah. ancestry? Okay, well, you have this this archaeological culture in, in Eastern uh, Asia that's called the Duktai. 
Okay. Okay. The and it's got a, a stone assemblage that's got different tool types, different technologies. It has different sort of environmental places and site types. And then you start tracking that across. You make your table and you put down the characteristics of things. And you end up coming out with Denali, in, in, which is, to me, a perfectly logical sequence. Denali is after Duke Tai, and you can see it traveling across Asia. It, things change a little bit, but overall, you make this comparison. That's all we're doing. Yeah. It's exact, using exactly the same methodology and the same kinds mm-hmm. of comparisons, but because it's the Atlantic, forget it. Yes, yeah, yeah. Now, to, and, and I've asked this uh, of some, and, and we want people, we've always wanted people to challenge this. It's not a matter of we're right, you're wrong. We, the, the challenge, that's how science works, how it should work. But I've asked some of the people that have just categorically won't even look at the evidence. I mean, that's how bad it is. Yeah, goodness. And I'll yeah. say, look, yeah. <clears throat> if, if Salutrian, if we found Salutrian sites, in northeastern Siberia, none of us would question where Clovis came from. Sure. Yeah. So it's only location. That's true, too. Yeah. If you yeah. use the same yeah. evidence, the same deductive method, etc., Clovis came out of Salutrian if it was in Northeast Asia. Therefore, it came out of yeah. Salutrian if it was in Southwest yeah. Europe. And what this does, it enriches our understanding of the capabilities of our ancestors. Fantastic. Yeah. 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 Doesn't limit it. Yeah. Archaeology should be allowing us windows into the past beyond what we imagined. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if we limit it by saying these people couldn't do it and then say the evidence isn't relevant, I don't even know why we're doing archaeology because what this does (laughs) is it shows us that the amazing capabilities that some of our ancestors had in this one situation, in this one place and time. I mean, it's, yeah. it, it gives me a much greater appreciation for those folks than if we yeah. limit them. And you say, yeah. well, yeah. this is what we know they could have done. Therefore, we're not going to look beyond that. And that's what we've done yeah. as a profession. So well put. That is massively the point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bruce, I, I interrupted you. you you're about to expound upon how you went about experimentally um, trying to disprove or, or support uh, the, the hypothesis um, with with Dennis, I think. Well, it's actually an experimental part of it, um, looking at the really understanding the Salutrian technology. Now, mm. this hadn't been done. Uh, the, the Paleolithic was really heavily focused on types of things, typologies. Yeah. Francois Borg really introduced the concept of technology to the Paleolithic study. But it wasn't really picked up that much. Um, but it, luckily and happily, it's, it's really gotten really advanced in, in France particularly. I have colleagues, other people that have really looked into the, the Clovis technology. And now that we have sites like Galt where we have the entire reduction process, we've got it all there from the raw rock right to the final use, which we don't have for many time periods in many places. We usually mm-hmm. have the end products and not the beginnings. Yeah. Uh, I was very, very fortunate to to get involved with some French colleagues uh, who uh, excavated a site in southern Touraine, uh, Les Maitreaux, um, which was a Salutrian laurel leaf biphase manufacturing site. They were also making blade wow. tools there. Hmm. Everything was still geologically in place. Goodness. 
The problem with Salutrian is it's relatively poorly known because, first of all, most sites were excavated before World War One. Yes. Oh. <laughs> when we had very, very poor techniques. Uh-huh. Uh, we don't have techniques like what we have now. They kept what they thought was neat. <laughs> um, and all but six of those sites are cave sites in, in caves or rock shelters at the bases of cliffs. Yeah. Salutrian people were not hunting animals in caves. <laughs> so we have a geological situation that at the end of the last glacial maximum, we have massive deflation and erosion of land surfaces. And a lot of the Salutrian record is gone. Okay. Okay. Yeah. We, when, when my trail, for whatever reason, it's a geological quirk, that stuff with the, the, the manufacturing place was sealed very with very fine sediments and just locked it in place. And my French colleagues, uh, Thierry Aubry, um, uh, and many other colleagues, both French and Portuguese, and amateurs that were working together on a project, excavated this site. I took amateurs from the United States and helped work, work on excavation mm-hmm. of the site. But what's really neat about that is we could see not only the piles where they were flaking, yeah, you could actually see the posture. We knew how high they were sitting. We could see the shadow of their leg. So we can tell how they were sitting with the left <laughs> leg out, the right leg back. And then all these pieces fit back together. So you can look at their choices and their their removals one after the next in sequence. Wow. Wow. Amazing. Wow, wow. Okay. Yeah. So you can really get into the head. Now, that doesn't necessarily represent all Salutrian biface flaking. It, yeah. it represents that site. That site is yeah. – rel- we don't have good dating on it, but it's we think it's relatively late in the Salutrian mm-hmm. sequence. So I was fortunate enough to get involved in that site. And then we did, a, uh, over several years, did experiments replicating that Salutrian technology with all 60,000 pieces sitting out on tables. Goodness gracious. <laughs> okay. So that there were eight of us, eight flint nappers from different places and different backgrounds that came together to do this. And we were able to, we had, I had my idea how it was done. Miguel had his idea, Jacques had his idea, you know, Terry had his idea. And we all got together, and at the very beginning, we decided and agreed that we would always be honest with each other about what we thought about stuff. No political games, no nobody's egos getting bruised. Cool. Okay. And we sat down, which is extremely rare in science, believe me, in academia. <laughs> yeah. um, we sat down. And came up with ideas about how to pursue this and then recorded what we did and so we could compare it exactly to what we found and tried to replicate yeah. what we were finding. Different postures, different ways of sitting, different tools, etc. Um, so that was a really big experiment. We have published that um, and we realized that none of us, when we came into that experiment, was actually doing Salutrian biphase technology. None of us. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it, all of us had part of it. And by the time we got to the end of it, I'd say there were two or three of us that really got good at it. And yeah, everybody yeah, agreed, yeah. this is it. And everybody yeah. could say, no, that's not right or that's not right. And, and, and we had all the stuff to compare it to, the originals, right there in front of us. So we could say, well, this is the way this was done. And we pick it up and say, well, I'll do that. Let's compare it. No, no, it doesn't. No, that's not right. <laughs> okay. And so that was a that was an interactive experiment that allowed, I think, to give me, at least for that biface technology, yeah. an insight that is only shared by those eight people. 
That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. What a process to have gone through. That's but then a we've privilege, got isn't Clovis it? Yeah. As well. Unfortunately, we don't have Clovis that fits back together like that. We've got a few. Yeah, yeah, much, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't have to fit back together to understand the technology. Once mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. get yeah. a deep enough understanding of what has to happen to, for this, because it's a reduction process, you take a yeah. flake yeah. off, you can't put it back and try again. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, once it's gone, it, it's off. It's off. Yeah. Whatever yeah. you did. But the neat thing is, stone is preserved, so you can see the behavior for the striking of that flake. What came before, yeah. Yeah. what they did, and what it might have done to the piece. Yeah. Yeah. And then you two flow together. So it's basically building a story from from words. Each one of those is a word. They build the story. So well described. Yeah. The, the, the one yeah. point that I want to make, no pun intended. Here, uh, it's that <laughs> from this, I think we were able to to gain an uh, an understanding of their cognitive approach. Yeah. And Salutrian is so outside of the rest of the Paleolithic. It's unique in its own. It, it's a worldview that is exuberant. Um, it's laissez-faire. They don't care if they break things. They don't care if they're re wasting resources. This site, Lay My Truck. Okay was out in the tundra, very close probably to the edge of the glacier. No other Salutrian sites nearby. They were making Salutrian bifaces that were up to 60 centimeters long. No way those are usable. Oh, you know, I see. Yeah. They, they, yeah. And they're training, they're training nappers. We've got evidence of beginners and evidence of um, masters that are teaching apprentices. It's all there. Wow. Very complex. Mm -hmm. And yet mm -hmm. they're Wow. Most of this stuff is not being made to make their living. Actually, that, that's a really interesting point because something else that uh, I, I hope I got this right. There's something I thought I, uh, I picked up from you uh, before was that uh, that quartz blades are, are a common thing with Clovis, even when quartz wasn't uh, a local stone. Yeah. Am I right about yeah, that? Quartz crystal. Almost every time you get a Clovis site that's got more than... 10 points associated with it. One will be crystal quartz. Amazing. Yeah. Even at the gold site, we have a piece of crystal quartz point. And it's like, you've got enough flint to sink the world. I mean, why would they <laughs> have a crystal point when it has, it's not better to flake. In fact, it's harder to flake than yeah. it's more difficult. It's, it's got problems. Um, mm. And then we see another thing that's shared between, between Clovis and Salutrian is the, the desire for high quality, colorful materials or translucent materials. Mm. And you can do, I, I remember talking to some colleagues in, in, in Cantabria in Spain when they were doing archeological survey, looking for sites. They said, whenever we find a flakes that includes uh, quartz crystal, we know we've got a Salutrian site. People <laughs> be, before and after didn't use it because it was very, very rare and hard to come by. Uh, mm -hmm. We see that with Clovis in the West, especially, but we have quartz crystal mm -hmm. points from Clovis sites in Northeastern, Southern, Southeastern, yeah. all over the United States, but they weren't using it as a primary source. But mm -hmm. we also see, yeah. in, especially in the West where we have caches, we see the, the selection of highly colorful stone, not necessarily the mm -hmm. best to flake, but the most colorful, the most translucent, the, I mean, exotic is what we call it. Yeah. And we have, sure. we have yeah. red jasper from the, the high mountains of, of, of Wyoming that today, many summers, it's not exposed. It's under snow. 
And at that time period, it was probably harder to come by. And they were going mm, through yeah. hundreds of hundreds of kilometers of open landscape. It was covered with usable stone and some of it better. Mm. But they were going all the way up into the mountains and getting this red stone. Okay? Yeah, it yeah, looks like yeah. blood red. So, Amazing. again, yeah, it gives yeah. us tiny insight into their mindset. They're, they're, it's not all about making a living. It's not all about efficiency. It's not all about struggling struggling through life. These people had complex lives. They had complex yeah. concepts. They knew the landscape like you cannot believe. Yeah. Um, and they made decisions that, that aren't the kind of decisions that you'd think of as efficient. And the relationship to stone, to rock, was right. very particular. Very particular. I think that, that's the, the point yeah. Yeah, that you're trying to make. It's the relationship to the stone. It's not that the artifacts themselves are the same. It's that the mindset in order to make those um, artifacts has to be the same for them to arise out of, to emerge from the stone. It's an interesting yeah. commonality, though, isn't it? That uh, that when when you look at, for example, the the beautiful greenstone axes mm -hmm. that uh, that we have coming from the high Alps, right? And uh, and even in uh, in uh, Langdale, mm. uh, you know, the X Factory up Pika Stickle, that there was this thing about the purity of the stone or the desire to have axes made from the stones. That maybe it's because they were closer to the gods. It was certainly they were up in the high mountains. See that all over the world. Yeah. Yeah, at different times in different places. I've been on the axe yeah. quarry up on Mauna Lea in Hawaii that's at 15,000 oh, feet elevation. Uh, yeah. Some of those adzes, they're very specific and very special. But they were up there mm. in high tundra, basically, making these things mm. in huge, huge quarries. Um, and they've been found, finished ones have been found in Tahiti, yeah. wow. made out of that stone. Yeah. And up there, you can see yeah. all these alignments of cairns and stuff that are clearly a ritual landscape. Mm, mm, now, mm. they could yeah. have got adequate stone to make those adzes down where it's nice. You can jump into Waimea Bay and have a nice warm <laughs> get together. And yeah. they, there was stone down there that could have been used, but they went up to get this. And again, certainly it had to do with the specialness of the mountain. Yes, we can't always get into these things, and we got to be careful not to, to go too far out that direction. But when you see it, why sure. not interpret it? While we're talking about the material uh, evidence, can you speak a bit uh, about finds in uh, Chesapeake Bay? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that that's currently going on, and it's been going on for a number of years now, and headed up by a fellow by the name of Darren Lowry, uh, an amazing fellow, grew up on Chesapeake Bay in a, in a fishing family. He's a waterman family. And he started collecting arrowheads along the beaches when he was a kid and started finding mm. all this stuff. And he's now a PhD in geomorphology out of Delaware. He's okay. crazy. But he gets out on the lake. He gets out on the water every weekend, basically. Um, and there's massive coastal erosion happening right now along the Chesapeake. Islands are disappearing because of the mm -hmm. coastal yeah. erosion. It's not unique it's not new in the sense that there's always been things like this but what's been coming out and what he's documented very well at a number of sites and caught a lot of flack for it because people don't want to believe it is we've got archaeological materials dating in multiple ways of dating of it 21,000 years ago oh, cracking. Um, oh. and coming out uh, mostly they're found on the beach because they've eroded out but he's found a number of them now in absolute context, perfectly in place, um, mm -hmm. including 
but it's basically it's a Salutrian assemblage. It has everything Salutrian. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I'm calling uh -huh. it the American Salutrian because it's Amazing. it's got the bifaces with the right technology, the right forms. It's got the shouldered points. It's got the right kind of blade technologies. Everything. I mean, you mm -hmm. put it in France and you wouldn't blink an eye. Amazing. You see, yeah. this is a little weird, but it's it's so Salutrian. And that's happening right now. He's documenting all yeah. of this stuff, and he's in the process of writing a report for a, 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 a site called Parsons Island, um, yeah. yes. uh, which is documenting all this. And he's done all the work. It's amazing the work that he's done, and with some some amateur friends that go out there and check them every every time there's a storm, they check. Um, and it's been really frustrating because there's been such an outcry against it, without even. <sighs> Yeah. And he keeps inviting people to come out and look at it, and they won't. Yeah, out. yeah. But and the other the other problem is it's logistically extremely difficult to mount an ex an excavation. You know, it's mm -hmm. you to approach these things. They're islands. I mean, when the tide is in, you've got to go through. Yeah. I don't know, three hundred meters of three inch water. So you can't yeah, even land yeah. the boat. And the coastline is is deteriorating. Oh, very fast as well. So yeah. you've got you've got to move quickly. Yeah. Yes, and. And this particular Parsons Island deposit is over three meters down be before you even find the archaeology. Yeah, so, yeah. so anyhow, it, that's happening. We now have he now has eight or ten sites that, that are like this that date to this time amazing. period with the right stuff in them. Just Important amazing. to mention that. I'm I'm aware that now we have been talking for. 90 minutes and we're just starting <laughs> i know <laughs> but uh, it's important that we cover the bases i think one other aspect of it um that you can talk a bit about um that um some detractors would say um uh, detracts from the hypothesis and there are other aspects that um support it and that is the dna yeah. uh, evidence can you speak a little bit about how that's worked out? I can speak very little about it, but uh, a little bit. Again, we have the results in our book that we knew of in, in 2012. This this methodology is is changing so quickly, and, and so much work is being done. Um, there's articles coming out almost weekly about stuff in, in, in the Americas. Um, mm. It's not my area of expertise. I've had to learn a lot about it that I never thought I'd learn uh and we have a, a colleague uh, uh stephen oppenheimer who is yes. at oxford who is working with us and other people on on the genetic aspects of it um he was a out of africa guy you know that came up with that okay. whole thing yeah uh, very yeah. highly yeah. highly acclaimed uh geneticist um in his book that he wrote I can't even remember 2009 or whatever it was, was, was the out of Eden. Uh, I've got it over there on my bookshelf yeah. somewhere, but anyhow, uh, he, yeah. he, he was looking at, you know, the spread of humanity, modern human beings around the world. And he accepted the, the idea that all the native Americans came originally from Siberia. And then when he got involved with, with us and saw some of our presentations, he started to rethink it and went back to his data and said, oops, I kind of blew that. I was just accepting what other people were saying. And he sort of has a mea yeah. culpa. And there's genetics that in the new world that can't be explained uh, simply. They're Western Eurasian genetics, uh, specifically mm -hmm. ATDNA, mitochondrial DNA, uh, female descent. And there's a great 
kerfluffle amongst the geneticists about this and other genetic information where they say this has to have been this way, but it couldn't have, so it must have done this. Yes. So in in a sense, they're in the same boat. It couldn't have. They they set limitations on on how they interpret things. Not all of them, but the majority of them have, at least so far. New evidence keeps coming in constantly. Like I said, there's new articles, and some of them are are very strongly saying no way could Salutrians have possibly done this. There's no genetics that shows it. Other people are saying, well, what about X2A, and what about this, and what about that? Now we've got this population in Brazil, the Cartiana, that if you look at their genetics, they're the origin of the French. Them and them, them combined with the <laughs> them combined with the Sardinians are the origin of the French genetically. How could that happen? Oh my lord! You know, and it, it goes on. How could that happen? Well, yeah. The problem is, from my perspective, and I'm again not an expert at all, is that the genetic stuff is so new, it's so complex, and especially when you get into yes. the um, nuclear genetics, where you got three billion mm-hmm. base pairs. Now, okay. you can't study 3 billion base pairs. So what you do is you 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 statistically manipulate stuff. Mm, yeah. And it depends on what your assumptions are when you put it in. It used to be, and I can't say that this is going on anymore the same way. Maybe I'm getting it wrong. But trying to understand Native American origins, geneticists would take the data and what they call mask the data. In other words, they strip out all European genetics first because – they had to have been post-Columbian. So, if you want to know of the origin, yeah, sure. If you want to know of the origin of the Native Americans, you got to get rid of this admixture that was post-Columbian. So they stripped the, the the European, the Western Eurasian genetics out of it, and then do all their manipulations, and they come to the conclusion that nobody came from Europe. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And now that's a surprise, but I'm, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm it. But but yeah. Yeah. So. And and then other other things that a geneticist not that long ago, very renowned, he does incredible work. I can't, I'm not complaining about his work or anything, but you know he's relying on archaeologists, certain archaeologists to to interpret things. We got a specimen, one individual, one individual found in a possible Clovis context in uh, Montana that did the mm-hmm. genetics. And the conclusion from those genetics were that Clovis people couldn't have come from Europe because of the genetics of this one infant. Right. A sample okay. of one. Yeah. And it's not even. Yes. And then you have to assume, you have to make the argument that this represented all Clovis people. Yeah. Yes. This one infant represented all Clovis yeah. population. And so the, the interpretation was it, it negates entirely the Salutrian hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah, this is yeah. the kind of yeah. stuff on the basis of one, yeah. Based on, I mean, mm, yeah. If I was basing it on one Clovis point and one Salutrian laurel leaf, I'd be laughed out of the profession, and rightfully so. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. genetics is not. really important. Yeah. No, we're doing whole assemblages and thousands of things. Genetics is going to be extremely important, but it has its problems as well. We we've got mm. most mm. most genetic lines have died out. Now, if we don't have good ancient DNA and we're relying on modern populations, we're only, for instance, act, uh, mitochondrial DNA can be traced back to a single woman, a single individual. All existing mitochondrial yeah. DNA goes back to one woman about 
60,000 years ago. Now, yeah. we know there was yeah. more than one woman 60,000 years ago, unless we had to go to Adam and Eve. So all those other <laughs> ones died out. They're not expressed in modern populations. So yeah. it's, it's yeah. Understood. We've, got Understood. A, we've got a long way to go. I think genetics is great, and the more we can do, the better. Um, yeah. But I think we have to be patient and let the, the – mm let the evidence develop before we start to come into these grand conclusions. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, it's so true that uh, the, one of the great things about modern archaeology is that it's becoming more and more and more a measurable science as opposed to an interpretive mm -hmm. uh, a discipline, which is, you know, it's not that far back. You know, it's only decades really ago that archaeology was an interpretive discipline you could almost have called it an art yeah uh, by many uh, criteria uh, <laughs> academically uh, so it's a wonderful thing that particularly with isotope analysis and all the other things mm -hmm. that have opened up for us in the last say 20 years mm -hmm. uh, so yeah as you say I, I think vast things will change mm -hmm. uh, in our knowledge over the uh, over the coming years uh, not least of all with, uh, you know, with all our, our, our ghost hominins, you know, the species that we know that they're in there in our DNA, but we have no idea who they were or where they came from. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's a good thing. It's, you know, it, the, the science is, is becoming more exciting, not less. It is, but it's also more limiting because we can't afford it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah. Bruce, are there, any other, are there any other strands of evidence that you want to speak to that uh, support uh, the Salutrian hypothesis that we haven't touched upon yet? No, not, not specifically. Um, mm -hmm. I think one of the things that, we, we tend to undervalue uh, is what Rupert was actually talking about as the interpretive aspect Yeah, yeah. Um, by getting more and more scientific based, which is really, really good. We need it. We need mm -hmm. solid evidence that we can rely on. We seem to, we, we tend to cut out the humanity, um, the, uh -huh. the capability of human beings to make mistakes, to, to fail, to mm -hmm. uh, be crazy, to, to, be you know the, the risk factors we we we're, we tend to homogenize everything into very simple categories that can be scientifically yeah. and statistically yeah. sort of quantified. Uh, okay. I've worked. I, I've been around enough Native American people um, to really get a sense of, of what it is to have a completely different worldview from what I was raised in, mm. um, yeah. and to base decisions that aren't on what's good for me today and what's better for, for, for my kids, uh, et cetera, to, to see the complexities of the human mind and how it can be expressed archaeologically. It just, it makes me despair a little bit about no matter how much science we do, we're still got to go back. We've got to go back to people. Um, yeah, yes. and and the one thing you know, I'm often asked in, in interviews, uh, well, you've got 50 years of archaeology. If you had had to say one thing about what you've learned, what is that one thing? And it boils down <laughs> to three words: folks is folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people people. yeah. We, we have yeah. this incredible yeah. ability to do things different ways, and but we all care about our family. We all care about whether am I going to get a toothache tomorrow. You know, it, it yeah. goes back down to this 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 level, 
And if we're not careful, we, we, we get so much science, we forget about imagination. That is so true. And, and yeah. people say, well, why would they go out on the Atlantic Ocean? It was so dangerous. Why wouldn't they? They're people. Why are all these people dying on Mount Everest right now? I mean, there's no logical reason to do this stuff because we're human beings. And yeah. even even animals, I don't know if you saw that story uh, several months ago about the Norwegian scientists that tracked a female, two-year-old female fox that went from northern Norway to northern Canada in four months. Oh, my wow. goodness. Okay. And they had yeah. a collar on her and tracked her all the way across the glaciers, the sea ice, and all this kind of stuff. In four months, she made it all the way to northern Canada. Gee, that's extraordinary. Is, Left to our own devices, we do that thing, don't we? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Why would a female fox take off? I mean, she must have been crazy, but she managed to survive. That That is absolutely amazing. That is amazing. Do you know what? It's funny. You you. you uh, you, you're talking about humanity, though. Uh, you, Mike, you can cut this out. But it's just an interesting thing. I remember years ago reading uh, that uh, when uh, uh, when they were analysing some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they got in a handwriting expert who the uh, the police in the in the states I can't remember her name but it was the police in the states had used this woman for handwriting analysis for years. So they got her in to have a look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. And uh, and she, she, there was one scroll in particular that uh, that when she went through all this stuff and they got her analysis afterwards and she said well she could tell that there were three different men had written this scroll and uh, and they took it in shifts she could tell this from the different handwriting and she said number two the the guy who took over from number one. He was seriously stressed, and uh, you know, and she and all this different analysis. And they asked her when she'd finished all her work. They asked her, "What have you learnt from uh, from all of this?" And she said, "What I've learnt is that people haven't changed one jot in the last few thousand years." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know. So, so, so you saying folks is folks. You know, that's. Uh, uh, it, that's it. You know, we're just we're we're not really fundamentally any different from mm. how we were way back when. And, uh, and we got uh, to allow ourselves to be that to think that way at some level, because otherwise we're stealing their humanity. We're robbing yes. their humanity by turning yeah. them into subjects of of science. And, and yeah. yes, scientific method is absolutely critical for evidence gathering, but. We've got to stick with the interpretive stuff that allows us to incorporate some level of, of mysticism, whatever you want to call it, that makes us human. Beautifully put. I, I think, uh, Bruce, you've provided us with a, a, a really great coda to our talk uh, this evening. Good. I can't Good think of a, of a better way, you know, of uh, having explained, illuminating a bit more for people this side of the Atlantic, a lot more <laughs> about the depth of understanding and the, and, and the depth of time scale of uh, archaeology that you've got over there, but also your own hypothesis and uh, the late uh, Dennis Stanford's uh, hypothesis mm -hmm. on the migration, potential migration of uh, Europeans into the North America. Okay, I'm going to correct you one, one place, Michael, I want to correct. Please do. They weren't, yeah. they weren't Europeans. That, yeah. They were people Absolutely. from what is now Europe. Good, good catch. <laughs> yeah, we, 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 we're, yeah. We've always been really yeah. careful about this as well before the yes. Indo-European expansion. 
Yeah. These are other yeah, yeah. No, that that is a that is a very good point. Cheddar Man was blank. You know, I think we should. <laughs> it's it's such a you know yeah. it's it's a good point. You're right. It's not Europeans. Anyhow, sorry, yeah. I had to. No, absolutely right. I'm so glad uh, so glad you did. I was fishing for my words and uh, came up with a bummer. <laughs> yeah. No, well, do you know what? I mean, I could say this. I could just talk to you all day. You know, it, it's uh, it's an absolute joy to have been able to talk to you, Bruce. You know, you we we have talked about you uh, so many times uh, over the years, and uh, so you know, just thrilled that you uh, that you uh, came and joined us. Uh, we're going to have to make an effort to come over and visit you and and take you out for that beer. Do that. Uh, yeah. I'd love to show you some of the archaeology around here because. That would be yeah, something to, to, see those to expose to people over there. It's so special. Um, yeah. yeah. Not Mayans. It's not Aztecs. It's just f- farming folks, but amazing stuff. And I yeah, can introduce yeah. you yeah. to some of their yeah. descendants as well. We should uh, maybe put some effort into into doing that. Well, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, Making our own transatlantic bridge. I'd also that would like be good. to say I really appreciate the kind of things that you're doing to bring archaeology and the, the ideas of the past to the public um it's these sorts oh, of things you. that are really thank you Bruce. really important or that archaeologists generally are not very good at um and yeah. <laughs> well it's true yeah. and and uh yeah we we don't put effort into it again so much of its pressures of academia etc we're supposed to interpret to the public because it's public money but then they won't fund it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, if, if you, sure, sure, sure. So, so what you're doing and, and a number of other people that are doing these things, the Archaeology Channel, et cetera, I really appreciate those. Mm. So and, and that's really why I'm doing this with you, because I, I think it's our obligation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, forward. Bruce. Yeah. yeah. So anyhow. Sure. No, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. It has been a joy. And with that, we will say goodbye. Thank you for listening, folks. Uh, see you next time. So it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from it's goodbye from me. <laughs> and I, it just sounds like University Challenge going on here. And <laughs> goodbye from me. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and send me the link when you get it done, so I can listen to it. Certainly will. No problem. If you're still listening, just a reminder that if you enjoyed this show and would like an opportunity to support us in growing the Prehistory Guys project, the podcasts, the films, the live streaming shows, you can do so via the Patreon crowdfunding platform. Go to patreon.com slash theprehistoryguys to become part of the team, help enable our work going forward, and to unlock special content only available to our patrons. Until the next time, once again, thanks for listening.